gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. We have two reviews for you because we have two movies that are too interesting to discuss, uh, not to discuss both of them. Uh, first up, we're going to talk about Magic Mike XXL. I know one of these people who was with me who's excited to talk about it. And then uh, Patches and Dave are going to dig into Terminator Genesis. Patches, pop quiz, spell that title. G-E-N-Y-S-I-S. No, no. no I-S-Y-S? <laughs> oh, <laughs> damn. <laughs> I really thought you were going to get that. Genus. You blew it. Genesis. You blew it. Genesis. There's only one way uh, to make up for that. Uh, Cue up, Pony, please. Horses like to eat lots of hay and grass. It makes them big and strong. They have beautiful manes and poofy tails with hair so nice and long. A sequel to the male stripper movie that no one really thought would be a gigantic success in 2012. Magic Mike XXL is basically exactly what it promises. It is the most of the people from Magic Mike with uh, Alex Pettifer conveniently shipped away out of the movie in a single line of dialogue, which I found very funny. And Cody Horn. And Cody Horn and Matthew McConaughey. So. All, of the, all of the weak stuff and Matthew McConaughey. I liked off. Cody Horn in the first movie. No, you didn't. Oh, Nobody yes, liked did. Cody Horn in the first one. Oh, hang on. We're not letting Cody sweet. Horn derail us. We haven't even gotten through the plot yet. <laughs> We're not letting Cody Horn ruin another episode of the show. <laughs> I love you, Cody. <laughs> much, much already. I miss uh, you. I really missed her in Magic Mike XXL anyway. Okay. So we find uh, Channing Tatum's Mike, who has done exactly what he said he was going to do at the end of the first movie. He's got his own furniture company going on. He's quit the stripping business. He's uh, got, a, got another employee, even though he can't pay him health insurance. But then when his old uh, stripper buddies come back through Tampa and invite him, to, invite him to join them on a road trip to Myrtle Beach, where there's going to be a stripper convention, <laughs> he can't resist the lure of the open road and his bros for reasons that we learned It's interesting it. that it's a convention and not a competition. Not a competition, it, yeah. It, we'll, we'll talk about that. But I'm smiling from ear to ear just listening Katie recount the plot details of this movie. I love it so much. It's important to note that before he gets in the van with them, he is uh, welding some furniture and dances to Pony just because. He hears it like it's calling to him. Like just when you thought they pulled him back out. the Joan of Arc of this movie and God sings Pony (laughs) to him and and then he dry humps. The reintroduction of uh, Tarzan is like Nick Fury when he picks up the phone. <laughs> I, was, I was joking after the movie that they could with the, they could have a Magic Mike cinematic universe, the MMCU. I would be mm-hmm. into that. Uh, we'd all watch that. So they go on the road, and what follows is a road movie, essentially. Like, they stop in various places. Jada Pinkett Smith and Andy McDowell kind of That's show Blues up for Brothers. long digressions in their various locations across the South. And then uh, they eventually make it to the stripper convention. And as uh, as David has said, there's essentially no conflict in the movie. But I do think there is a nice sense of uh, camaraderie and growing up. And not nearly as melancholy as the first Magic Mike, which we can get into about whether or not it's a good or bad thing. Wait, but there's minor conflicts, and I want you guys to explain to me what it was because i was a little lost on this ken matt bomer is mad at mike channing tatum for some reason over a a no they're all about they're all a bit 
frustrated with him because he left them. He was sort of the glue that the solvent right. that held the kings of Tampa together in the first movie. But and they mentioned he, a girl. They mentioned a like a Melanie. I want to say a Melanie. Uh, I don't know. Uh, did not catch that particular detail and feels not especially important. But I there is a residual uh, bitterness towards him Uh, but what's so one of the things that is just so immensely beautiful about this movie is how everybody to a person forgives each other within the first 30 minutes and the rest is just them all uh, being open and honest and sensitive and loving and supportive and on uh, drugs for and on a lot drugs of that and, bonding and but not any not we're not talking about heroin here we're talking about oh, yeah. you know, the euphoric <laughs> <Just> simple <drug>. molly <laughs> um and uh you know i i'm just reading a heartening tweet as we record this from devin Faraci calling it one of the best sequels ever a man after my own heart um but uh, and I agree with him. I think this is uh, this is one of the best movies of the year. It is one of the most fun times I can remember having in a movie theater. It is unbridled joy. There is zero conflict in this movie. You make Chef look like War and Peace by comparison. Uh, they just go from brilliant, brilliant set piece, uh, more brilliant set piece in a way that feels like a martial arts movie, um, and is done with the same degree of precision. Um, it almost there was like it, like the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon of. Uh, male stripper movies. Well, wouldn't you say it compares more like a musical with the set pieces? Well, like, that's I think what that, I thought of it a couple times. Well, uh, of course, you know, the um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon plays very strongly like a musical. So the transitive property, yes. <laughs> uh, it, it's really all one and the same. And I, the movie that The Red Shoes was silly of me at nine in the morning, I think that uh, Singing in the Rain is a much more apt comparison given the theme of this movie of them all sort of finding their own voice because they decide they don't want to be the hacky strippers anymore. They don't want to do the construction worker bit and the whatever bit. They're going to do things that reflect who they really are in this one last blaze of glory. And the minor tossed off conversations from earlier in the film resurface in the most satisfying ways. The last 30 or so minutes of this movie, which as Matt said, take place at a, uh, convention rather than a competition because there are no losers in this film uh, are just ecstatic. I mean, it is like stand on your feet cheering. And uh, again, I, I would inc- not again. We haven't said this on the air for this episode, but um, women and gay men and whomever is are more than welcome to disagree with me. But uh, for me, watching this movie and the previous one as well, there's a certain asexuality to the movie. I feel. Um, that the it's so much like the women and Katie, I would love for you to speak to this when I shut up, but uh, <laughs> it, it pays attention to female voyeurism, female gaze, female pleasure. But particularly in that last sequence, I mean, it's so much about what the boys are doing together, uh, how they're supporting one another, the fun that they're having um, that, it just feels like they're not objectifying the women, but that they're not necessarily performing for them so much as they are themselves. Uh, yeah, I think that's that no. I think that's really important, especially with the uh, with the end of the movie where you've got these guys kind of doing their individual performances at the stripper convention, and they the camera lingers on the faces of the women and what a good time they're having, which is something that was kind of said but not seen in the first Magic Mike, which really worked for what they were doing. Like it, that movie wasn't really about the stripping; it was about all the other things going on around it. But this one really like kind of leans into the musical structure of being about these stripping scenes, and the stripping scenes are telling a story. And there's a, you know I think. The best dancing in the movie is Joe, Joe Manganiello 
his character Big Dick Richie dancing in a convenience store all to get the <laughs> clerk just to smile. Like all he wants to do is just prove that he's got still got it and can get her to smile. And the way that it pays attention to women having a good time, but kind of being like the women don't really care what the men are thinking and the men don't really care what the women are thinking. And it works really well. Like they're all getting the exactly men, what they want. I think out the of men it. definitely care what the women are thinking, especially well, and, when all these strippers end up in, you know, someone's living room, uh, Andy McDowell's living room. They're talking about these, I'd to these say women it's about still their your day and about their about their sexual histories. And they're like, you can feel good about yourself. And they they give them the gift of dry humping and uh, yeah. crotch smells. And the, yeah, I mean, it gets re- it gets really literal in a scene where Donald Glover shows up as a stripper. Jesus Christ. God almighty. That was, that was but no, he thing. doesn't strip. He sings. And, well, it's, he and it's, he's shirtless. And it's part of uh, just exhilarating sequence oh, that just builds no, and builds no, and builds. No, no, uh, no. And, and like every other scene in the movie, amounts to nothing as far as the progress of the plot, but uh, other than like an RPG, a, a video game, just assembling new team members for their party uh, who show up with the same winning attitude that everybody else has. Um, but uh, I, I loved how even in that scene, which veers you would think the closest towards competition that it might in the movie uh, with this sort of uh, territorial push and pull and, and Mike and the gang invading um, or, or dancing up against these people in their own house that immediately, even in a dance-off, they are flipping over each other and working in tandem. Uh, it, it's, it's really beautiful to watch. It's, uh, it's just unadulterated joy in this movie. I could not get enough of Patches. Clearly. Why do you and Steven Soderbergh shot the hell out of it. Oh, my God. Peter Andrews, man. He killed it. <laughs> yeah, you do wonder how, if Greg Jacobs, the director of this movie, isn't just Steven Soderbergh. Another Soderbergh I, I alias. I wonder that. I mean, Peter J- uh, Gregory Jacobs has worked for uh, Steven Soderbergh extensively, second unit stuff. Sure. Uh, he's also a proven director. He directed that movie Criminal a million years ago. Um, and... You can watch sort of B-roll. You can see it on YouTube. You can get it. Okay, I'm not a truther for this cause. <laughs> no, it's, no, but I'm not saying it's – but he – Psycho. I think that Steven Soderbergh probably had more of an influence on what was going on screen than most cinematographers do. And that's quite a bit to begin with, uh, particularly because he laid the groundwork for this, uh, this film yeah, world. There's an established but, style and this movie follows it to a T. Well, almost to a T, because Katie was saying as well that the the first film was a little bit more serious and subdued. It was his heavy-handed uh, story about the economy, which oh, I enjoyed. I'm very, really talking about the cinematography. Uh, but there's – right, but uh, the cinematography reflected that in sort of jaundiced yellow look. And this film being a lot more bright, bubbly, uh, it's still very playful with the cinematography. There's this great scene on the beach – um, which introduces the film's only dead weight, which is the Amber Heard character who plays a love interest. Uh, but the way that it's shot in sharp contrast, uh, where faces are almost completely invisible, and it just feels like a night on the beach in a way that overlit night beach scenes almost never do. Um, it, it, it still feels like a there's a very strong authorial visual voice guiding these movies and sure. it, there's surprises abound visually. I mean, almost every choice is interesting in some way. Um, well, I might contend with that. I don't think Patches, it's that why did you hate magic? Mike Hicks. I did not hate this movie just to be clear, but <laughs> why, why do you, you hate women enjoying? I, yeah, this I did. Well, yeah. it's funny that you say that because I left Let's this get your movie, girlfriend on the show. I huh? left, I left this movie thinking a few things. One that the plot 
meandered and on purpose, um, but that there was a lot of junk in the movie that eroded what I loved about it, which was the dance scenes, just the exhilaration of these guys performing. They're amazing, and that's a lot of fun. And but you can't have oh come on now. This is ex- stop. You can't. Yeah, I know no, you got to stop. Don't, for a David, don't interrupt him. Because what I'm saying is, I knew when I got out of here when I start talking about plot that david's flag his, his siren goes off it says it's supposed to not have any plot no i was um, just going to say that, that in a martial arts film uh, or dance film for example you un, uh, aside from like girl walk all day uh you can't have i'm not saying constant stimuli you need i'm not those. saying you can i'm just saying there's there's movies that do these interstitial bits well that they decide to have a character arc and you know, have this this stimulation, this dance. Um, they they can do both in kind of parallel, or you know, in in so double helix spiraling together. It can you be a would great say movie. that there are no because I thought that there was tremendous character work in this film. It just doesn't follow um, a typical okay. arc. But well, this you is do this feel is what like this is what I, I knew I'd run organic. into this from you about typical arcs and yada yada. It's 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 almost critic proof. It's almost criticism proof here in this arena because also yeah, you do run into. Well, you're you're a white dude, and you probably don't like this movie. Why do you hate women? Uh, blah, blah. You know, people. Why do you hate women? Well, here's why I hate women, and I, <laughs> I didn't want to deviate into this, but I just finally so getting problems. into this. Um, we, so, starting with the positives, I mean, I do really like the dancing. Channing Tatum is an amazing dancer. Going he's an back amazing to that scene, dancer. That first time he hears Pony, and he's just like so driven. I mean, he he uses a drill to fuck his table. And just pokes <laughs> holes in it. It's awesome. It's so. I mean, it's like flash dance. It's incredible. It's a really incredible scene, and and it's shot perfectly. I mean, all the moves are really well done. If if any scene in the movie has a visual identity, it's that. Just all the angles are perfect. Um, but I think it really kind of. I mean, it takes time to get going and to figure out what this movie is going to be about. How it's going to be able to stuff dance scenes into it. I wish it was a little more like Blues Brothers, where it was just like we need to hit. This spot, this spot, this spot, this spot, and do this dance, this dance, this dance, and then the big dance. Because I think I, I, it would, you know, this movie sh- might as well just be a fathom event of uh, a strip club live stream. It, it no, be what? I highly what? disagree with that. No, justify the words that are coming out of your mouth. Right I, 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 I'm just saying we're, we're getting close to that. Uh, that, that uh, we're going to pass the threshold at some point where it should just all be dance. Uh, and I think it really could if you just stuck... You know, there are interesting characters here. They get to this mansion with Jada Pinkett Smith, who is a great character. She Who knew that Jada Pinkett Smith was this amazing hype woman? Like, she's yeah, so she good. Yeah, she's really great. This part. Um, but the, the time it takes to get there and the conversations these knuckleheads have... Uh, Channing Tatum's a weird performer for me because... Between Magic Mike and Magic Mike XXL, I mean, I really, really like the first movie quite a bit. I like how it's not, a quote-unquote, about the dancing. It is, because that's what their lives are, and economics are part of that, but it's still about the dance. Um, between these two movies, I feel like Chetik Tatum has just adopted his 21, 22 Jump Street persona, where he feels like every word out of his mouth has to be improvised or slack, um, and he's always making jokes. This was not, like, the character... From the first movie, which is not a problem. He can adjust and be something new for this movie, but it didn't really work for me that he's always joking and that he's so confident. Uh, he has nothing going on. And what? what's interesting he has about a, wait, he's, so he's wait, reeling. What's interesting about the end of the movie, we were talking about how every character what's what's fun is that every character gets a little arc in this movie. There is character work. It's not substantial and it's kind of like 
all over the place. I mean, Joe Manganiello, whatever his, however you say his last name, and Matt Bomer just have like some awful dialogue throughout this movie that goes nowhere. And then it does pay off a little bit just because it's calling back to stuff. Um, but that's not character work for me. And well, what's interesting I, I about Channing Tatum is that he goes through this whole movie not really knowing what he wants and maybe getting, you know, having a new love interest is kind of interesting. And then his payoff in the end is nothing. It's not tied back to anything. It just called kind of all slumped his over. His friends are his payoff. But it They're doesn't feel that way because together. he's not performing with Oh, men. my God. Uh, it's okay. Of course you do not hate women. Of course, Patches is a friend to women and animals. Uh, and well, well, if anything, however, I'm pro women here because I'm all about the however, dancing. I mean, the, the dancing photography is exhilarating. I must like ask, do you hate our listeners? Why would you lie to them and fill them with this nonsense when clearly I, I have nuanced uh, opinions where something's not just the best movie of all time or the worst movie of all time? This, Believe it or not, uh, it's possible. I, I, you did not feel as if the and again, this this movie is truly spoiler proof given that there is no plot to speak of um that you did not feel that um their camaraderie between the former kings of tampa was real and a reward unto itself because i did and i felt not like it channeled point uh, an ocean's 11 vibe in a way that resounded even more strongly than it did in that film where soderbergh sort of cast the iron it doesn't feel like Ocean's Eleven because they don't seem to be all bringing something to the table where they're changing each other. Channing Tatum just has all the answers for everybody and everyone should kind of just live like him where they're following their own destiny. And he has a minor problem that's easily fixed by this awful, awful Amber Heard character who just like every time she was on screen, the whole movie comes to a stop because she's just so oh, – I- In fairness, she has three scenes and in one of them she is a prop for the best dancing in the movie. I mean, so she has two matter. scenes. She, she has two real but scenes. But her two, scene, her two real mind. scenes are like teeth grindingly bad though. I, I said before the podcast, I will say it again. Amber Heard's character in this movie is as far as I've developed it in my head right now. A hot balloon or something. She's there the whole time, even when she's not there. But uh, she, and I, I literally, and I can't remember if this has ever happened to me before. I literally spent the entire movie thinking that she was Brie Larson, like convinced, like, yeah. oh, there's Brie Larson. Just like I was like, oh, there's Channing Tatum. She doesn't and look then, anything like Brie Larson. I don't know, but only in uh, only in that final dance scene was I like, wait a second. <laughs> That's Amber Heard. My bad. Um, uh, I will. Oh, sorry. I wanted to agree with you on some of the uh, character stuff. I think I'm with David that the uh, the camaraderie and the friendship is a reward. And I really didn't wasn't bothered at the end of the movie that Channing Tatum didn't have any resolution. I feel like the adventure was what was getting there. But I was a little baffled by the relationship they set up between him and Jada Pinkett. They have this past. Like, he worked right. for her at some point. Like, there's a scene at the place that she runs where he kind of jumps into the dance scene and he's goaded into it by her. But it's really unclear what he's trying to tell her or what he's accomplishing by jumping into this dance scene. Like, it's, it's like he's trying to send her a message. But we don't John understand Wick, what it is. And there's John a- Wick vibe of like the this underworld <laughs> yeah. where they all have their past. They pass all across the coins or something. <laughs> Yeah. Back here in one year for the uh, for the job. <laughs> I mean, I'll yeah. go to that place. But yeah, the, like it's they they're setting they were setting things up with that that it seemed like they were trying to tell us something, and it was just kind of done clumsily enough that I couldn't figure out what it and was. It take, and it didn't seems get it anything out of it. A long time to get like they're in the mansion for very long, and part of that is all the cool dancing. That's part of this sequence. Yeah, but, uh, there's an introduction and there's an outro. 
it all seemed to go nowhere, and it's really just trudging through quicksand. And there's another scene that's a lot like it, where Matt Bomer and Donald Glover, they're, they're just talking endlessly. Like, I felt like I went to that planet uh, in Interstellar, and I came back, and all my kids were old. <laughs> See, I if, mean, you're that, not, that if you're not vibing with, and pointless. If you're not vibing with this movie, I think that you will um, be very likely to feel about these scenes the way that Matt does. If you are... Enjoying it, I think that saying that I'm not jiving with them. No, I think that if you are not really just because for me at this point, like I wanted more. I wanted this movie to go on for seven hours. There was not a single moment of it where I, I I just thought that like every particularly when you when you understand sort of that the how the plot is operating and they're not trying to make it. You're right. No, I'm not saying that necessarily, but I'm just saying that um, I don't think it's a matter of like an intellectual failure to understand, but I just think that when you're not appreciating uh, how the Mm. plot is is operating necessarily, uh, it can feel like uh, quicksand, as you said. But I think think that... When I, you're no, I, I'm with I, David. I, I really liked this movie, and I was really with it. And I got into scenes like that, and I was like, "Okay, why are you here?" Just taking my attacks quite personally. I'm not saying that it's like I a matter am, of like because you're, that's I'm, how you talk no, to people. You're, you're, <laughs> no, you are twisting my words. I'm explicitly saying not that you uh, are too stupid to understand what's happening in the movie. Only that if you are not enjoying something, the fact that it is indulgent, indulgent even for those who like it, uh, is going to grate and is going to amplify your criticisms of it, your problem with it. However, if you are on its wavelength and are, uh, uh, which is not a qualitative comment on you as a viewer, but just simply uh, what you are enjoying and not enjoying, then for a movie like this, where its pleasures are sort of indulgent by definition, that the more the merrier was really what I wanted from it. So it when I realized that, like, that. indulging in a weird thing. Like, do people really want to hear these guys? talk about their extracurricular activities. I mean, it does kind of swing back, but it seems like there's more strategic ways to lay the tracks that Matt Bomer likes to sing, to pay that off in a big way. It just, it seems really clumsy, uh, to use Katie's word. Yeah, there's, there, I'm, I'm with you that there's a couple moments like that. And I, I mean, the payoff you get in the end when you get all these guys kind of achieving their dreams, it's so joyful, like what Dave has been talking about. But the clumsiness does bother me because like there's so many parts of this as shot by Steven Soderbergh and as acted by these guys feel really expert. And then when you get into the kind of narrative eddies, it can feel frustrating. At the same time, I feel like this is one of those movies that once you know that that's what the movie is and then you get to that place in Savannah and you're like, okay, we're here, that I might love it the next time I see it straight up and feel none of that impatience yeah, because I, I also, like so much of what the movie was giving me. I feel like there's also an element of uh, that I may have as the movie was going on and it went to these narrative eddies, as you say, felt about some of them the way Patches did, but that I, my response to its highs, which are plentiful, was so extreme that it sort of washes that away and makes it hard for me to access that anymore. Um, having yeah, I mean, it ends ones. on a great note, which is kind of what movies basically need to do. They can get away with a lot if they end really well. Yeah, I just wanted more of the, the, the juicy stuff, the good... I mean, the incredible dancing. I mean, all the stuff that happened in the mansion, these uh, you know, uh, Jada Pinkett Smith's guys are incredible. I mean, I think that's part, maybe that's part of my disappointment, too. Channing Michael Strahan. Oh, my God. Michael, well, oh, that, I think that's kind of a spoiler. Oh, well, Michael is that, Strahan is one of the. He's dancers. been promoting it on his show. Oh, has he really? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I had no idea. And it took me by surprise. Just, yeah. I'm like, I was waiting for the close up to see they even if we'd even get one. But like, yep, that's Michael Strahan. Definitely humping. Um, and Channing Tatum's the only guy on their team who can dance. I mean, I Kevin Nash was probably my second favorite guy. Tarzan, just because he 
he has the most going on. Like, he has a few lines in this movie are, that are, one, hysterical, and two, really sad and talking about something about life that doesn't seem just really kind of stuffed in to pay off later. He seems like a but real person. I think person. that's kind of why the guys are burned by Mike leaving them at the end of the last film, the start of this film. It's sort of like when Charlie leaves the Ducks in The Mighty Ducks. It's like they're the one guy who has real talent uh, who um, – was sort of holding them all together left and they were sort of spiraling as a result of that in a way that they wouldn't have been had Tarzan or Matt Bomer left. Uh, and so I think that his, the fact that his ability so greatly exceeds right, their but own like blow past is it. Like embrace that fact, drive it home and, and craft a movie out of it. Why is there, why are there three scenes talking about Froyo and the passion for Froyo? Like stop. It just—it doesn't matter. It's Come not on. dancing. Just keep Come dancing. The, the scene in the bus of the fifty-four minutes later title card, and it's just uh, not that funny. Like uh, a lot I of that bus cackling. banter. I, I just when after, you know, the, there's there's a moment that sends them flying, uh, and they have to get a new car. And that moment—that's the turning point when things really started picking up for me. This first half of the movie. I thought it was a real slog until they really got to the mansion, I guess. That was a big moment for me because I love all the dancers. I didn't really like Don Glover singing, but the dancers are so fucking good. The second half definitely improves on the first, but the it does pay off the groundwork late in the first. So uh, I, I Actually, would uh, certainly not suggest that you pull a lava and show up late. In, in my defense, as as we wrap up here, um, because you think I hate women, uh, the, the the record shows what amazing what an amazing diversity in this movie of not just races but of of body types of people, men and women and big women and small women and black women and white women and and, and Mexican women, just all sorts of people, just like so many different types of people and everyone gets humped. It doesn't matter who you are, you get humped. And that's awesome. Like Although, I really yeah, thought there was a, a thrill the moment- seeing Michael Strahan hump this big lady who was just so happy. It was great. Yeah. The moment really early in the movie where they wind up in a drag sh- drag club somewhere in Florida and uh, they're having like the amateur queen contest and the, the guys all eventually get up there. But the guys who get up there at first are these like really live, like clearly professional dancers. I would imagine they are actual drag queens. And they were so amazing to see like next to Channing Tatum up on the stage. And that you don't, you don't see a whole lot of men other than the main characters in the movie. But I loved that little glimpse and of this. That's you know, one of the scenes that sort of epitomizes the communal spirit of the whole film because they get up there. They all share the stage. They're all clapping for one another. Right, There's no. That's where division. the community thrives, right? But that, when yeah. they're together, what dancing, about, which is why the finale is kind of a. Uh, what about my favorite character, funny. the crazy girl in the football helmet from the party? <laughs> oh, <was> yeah. weird. <laughs> that was definitely weird. <laughs> that was great. All right, so in in conclusion, we would all agree that this is a masterpiece. Is that no, right? Well, maybe <laughs> not. But uh, well, you know, earlier this week we were talking about movies that feel like they're resonating in in tune with the world, the progressive world around us, and the change. And actually, Magic Mike is kind of that movie. It's a nicely progressive movie. Yeah, totally. I mean, what what can men do, and what can their passions be? What can women want, and what do they deserve? And and or gay men, gay women, all these people get to just so you would say we've, we've come a long way since what women want. I think Thank that's God. correct. <laughs> Mel Gibson for Magic Mike Three. Want to kill all the humans? Why can't we just be friends?
we're back here with a review of Terminator Genesis. Katie and David have gone off into the past or the future. We're not exactly sure where the time machine sent them, but who has replaced them? Dave. With it's me. Gonzalez. Hello, Dave. I saw the movie, but you missed the podcast. The yeah, does this count? I don't know if this counts for the drinking game, but you're here now. And technically, this has all been one episode. Um, through the magic of podcasting, we have made it so. You have seen Terminator, and we wanted to wait for you because you love Terminator. You're like me. I also really enjoy all – well, I shouldn't speak for you. I don't know if you enjoy all the Terminator movies. But after Terminator Genesis, I realized that I kind of have an affection for uh, uh, all of these movies on some level. They're just so confusing and so mythology-heavy that I'm amused by just trying to make the movies work, like the pure effort it takes to do this. Or what is your stance on all these Terminator movies? I mean, that's very similar uh, to what I enjoy about the franchise. I mean, the first two movies by James Cameron, you can enjoy just as science fiction movies and uh, on their own. And then if you are like a franchise fan, that you could still enjoy T3, Rise of the Machines, and certain aspects of Terminator Salvation, and maybe certain parts of Terminator Genesis, but they're not individually good films. I mean... What, it, uh, on what, what, what's your... Uh, the way you're rating them, then? Why, why aren't they individually good films? There's some good films in there, right? Maybe. Well, uh, Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines is about a punchline, which is that, spoiler alert, you can't stop Judgment Day, which is great if it's the last film in the franchise, but if it suddenly becomes a fatalistic franchise, then all these movies become about futility, which is why Terminator well, Salvation... Well, it was kind of the end of that string. I mean, it's, it's definitely a sequel to Terminator 2, but Terminator Salvation does not feel like an extension necessarily of Rise of the Machines. It just feels like an advancement into mythology we knew was happening. You know, yeah, and it T3 feels is not a requirement there. It, it doesn't give us a character to sort of uh, root for because I think of Christian Bale's portrayal of John Connor and Sam Worthington's sort of uh, blankness as the TX or whatever. Um, so yeah, I wasn't super impressed by that, but you know, it was nice to see it's been a movie ages taken since I've seen it. It was it was nice to see a movie take its place entirely in Judgment Day. I'm, I'm not going to fault McGee for attempting. I'll just fault him for new. execution. He tried something new. He did. And this movie also decides to try something new, but uh, it depends what your definition of try something new is, but let's let's try and set this movie up. In some ways. Do you want to ha your, try your hand at, at summarizing what this movie is about? Yes, and I could do it by basically ignoring the plot points, uh, <laughs> okay, which would be we, take, we start off in the future. We get to see rockets uh, fired by Skynet. We get to see John Connor meet Kyle Reese. And it looks very much like the, the original Terminator's glimpse into the future, the beginning of that movie. It's all like soft purples and blues. It's weird. It, and it doesn't look particularly good, I don't think, in modern CG. Like there's a reason it was kind of fuzzy and soft in that first 80s movie. I mean, I'm uh, still having fun at this point, but I, I get your point. Five minutes in. Yeah, I, no, I'm not still that having fun. Judge, I'm, it's Judgment Day has passed for me. I'm like already <laughs> judging it. Yeah, no. <laughs> anyway, so we get to see something that we've never seen in the franchise before, which is actually the series of events that lead to the initial time travel, which is the T-800 machine going back to 84, and then John Connor has to send his own dad back uh, to protect his uh, mom, uh, Sarah Connor. And uh, then uh, as things are 
basically going like we imagine they would. We see something that um, we've never heard about before in the Terminator mythos, and it's sort of confusing immediately as Kyle Reese is zapped backwards in time. He has flashes of a life that he never lived, and he pops in 1984's Terminator movie and completely ruins it because there's been a... Well, he another doesn't ter- completely ruin it. Okay, fair enough. Jai Courtney doesn't do anything uh, in this well, movie. Jai Courtney is ruining the things that he's doing, but uh, it's not Kyle Reese's fault that this is a totally new, revamped version of this original Terminator timeline. Right. Well, I mean, that's skipping over a plot point, whereas we don't know whose fault it is because the movie never addresses it, but we'll circle back to that, which is now in this version of 1984, there's been an older Terminator sent back to the 70s to protect Sarah Connor from a very young age when her parents were attacked by a T-1000 and uh, killed. And so uh, this Sarah Connor has been growing up with the Terminator, who she names Pops. And that's yep, they have like a familial relationship, and uh, they plan to use the Terminator sent back to 1984 to use the chip in his head to power another time machine, and they want to go to the 90s to stop Skynet from launching all those missiles that we saw at the beginning of the movie. But Kyle Reese has seen all these flashes while in like the goddamn Time Nexus or whatever, uh, where he sees a younger version of himself and he keeps having this dream that tells him that Skynet is Genesis. And Skynet Genesis- is Genesis. Our friend Jordan Hoffman immediately texted me after he saw the movie to tell me that this was the new Rinsler is Tron line. He was very excited for me to have this line in my life. Genesis is Skynet. And that they need to go to 2017, not the late 1990s, to stop Judgment Day. So they do. Uh, just Amelia Clark and Jai Courtney. Uh, Pops stays behind to age naturally. They jump into the future where they meet uh, John Connor, who is very happy to see them. And then it's revealed that he's a Terminator, which is revealed in the ad campaign, which is really weird because the movie treats it like a big surprise. And uh, he becomes the unstoppable force that chases them as they try once again to blow up Cyberdyne to prevent Judgment Day. Woo! That is a (laughs) a setup. That is a lot. You know, I did wonder why they didn't just stay in the 80s and, and wait. Why did they have to time travel? Was that explained? No. Okay. There's a lot of things in this movie that are not explained. And then it's so weird how the movie sets up rules or have characters reference missing pieces of plot and then just, like, leave it flat. Like, there's one point where John Connor looks at Pops and is like, well, who sent you back? And I'm like, yeah, good, tell me. And then the movie ends. And I'm like, well, who sent... If okay, if there is no fate but what we make, but time it's still important that we send everybody back the way we sent everybody back in the previous movies, then this is again just a goddamn fatalist movie where it's like in order for the old Terminator to be there in the first place, he needs to get sent back after they think they've stopped Skynet in this movie, which just invalidates the entire ending, which at that point you don't really care about because you've just been seeing like a CGI particle effects fight Arnold Schwarzenegger. In shorter words, this movie is hella confusing. I mean, it makes no sense. It's totally jumbled, but maybe that's the point. So I normally wouldn't gravitate towards... Like, what is what are all these plot details about and do they make sense? And how does this puzzle fit together? But is that the point of this movie? I mean, that's the that's the kind of enjoyment I got out of it, actually. I think being baffled by it, I I had this kind of gleeful reaction to just how crazy convoluted it had to be to both 
connect back to the old movies, reinvent, you know, this movie was clearly intended to just put Arnold Schwarzenegger fighting Arnold Schwarzenegger. That scene had to be in there. Uh, crazy idea. You could just see them pitching it to the studios, but now you have to work backwards from that. And it does. This movie does feel, you know, reverse engineered from some big moments. Uh, hot young Sarah Connor already fighting when she's in the, in the '80s, or or oh my God, John Connor's the bad guy now. Like, how do all these crazy twists? end up working and it feels reverse engineered um, which makes it very difficult to follow and piece together but part of that was enjoyable to me just how insane it had to get or or how much it glossed over and it was just like fuck it you know we're not going to explain this stuff it's the glossing over that I find kind of offensive as an audience member I mean if you're going to throw a whole bunch of pieces up into the air like catch them if you're like going to you know make a single movie that is basically just the plot of Terminator 2 and Terminator 3 redux uh, with nods to it but it's like at some point about halfway basically when they travel to 2017 uh, the movie tells you that the previous timeline is basically erased and then proceeds to make the only thing that you care about with these characters is if they're going to do what we know they have to do. And it just, it takes a lot of wind out of it and it becomes this thing that's been reverse engineered where it could have been like, just address one question of the Terminator franchise. Like, is there fate? Are there alternate timelines? Was there a timeline that Kyle Reese is not John Connor's father? Because that's sort of implied by the rules of time travel. Or just what are the rules of time travel? You could have a, you know, point A to point B Terminator chase with literally everything. I don't know why it's kind of impossible for this movie to pick what it is and then have fun with it. Like, I stopped having fun. I started laughing at mm. the movie. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger is exempt from everything that I'm saying, by the way. He's fantastic in this movie. Um, even, like, in the he, his character can't emote, so maybe it's sort of a plus in his direction. He, I mean, he, he has a parental, you know, aura to him. He, he has a weird, like, I'm the protective dad to Jai Courtney's Kyle Reese when, you know... This classic "don't touch my daughter" right. kind of attitude, which is classic weird. hacky. You, we have yeah, it's a little sitcommy, it. but uh, I, I thought some of that ended up working. I mean, that that that's my real question for you. Throughout all this logic puzzlement, um, do the characters shine? Does the is the action fun? Um, do these set pa- set pieces, you know, we're, we're led once again to let's infiltrate a building and blow it up. Like kind of the same stuff that we've seen in previous Terminator movies. Does it feel fresh at all? Uh, I mean, it's cool to look at. Alan Taylor as a director is, you know, very serviceable as a visualist. He just needs to find a movie that has a like a story that he actually cares about and needs to be able to keep control of that movie through to release uh, it's this, weird that Game of Thrones has had less CG than either of the two movies he's made. You know, he, he seems to excel with like people on horseback and sword fights, but he hasn't used those skills in any way. It's been very clunky CG in both movies. Right. Well, I mean, it's uh, this CG is fine comparatively. I think what I thought initially is like T-1000 is like a whole bunch of computer guys being like, we could do liquid. We could make liquid into anything. Let's make a Terminator out of it. And this is like particle physics as existed now. Let's make a particle Terminator. 
<laughs> and it just seems like I don't know. It, there's the Skydance, the, the uh, company that produced it and now holds all the Terminator rights, has been going around giving a lot of lip service to wanting to be like reverential to the initial yeah. films. But Skydance, it, oh, not Genesis, just to be clear. Right. Skydance, not Genesis. Oh, no, Apple's Genesis. That's Skynet is Genesis. Skydance, not right. Genesis. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't see what you were going for there, but yes. Get my jokes, damn it. I'm going back in time and correcting this. You are old and obsolete, Mr. Patches. No! I'm smiling like Terminator, though. Yeah, well, that's good. That makes your face look kind of rounder. Anyway, this whole deviation was a challenge because like Terminator Genesis, which goes in a billion different directions, you somehow have to follow this conversation. So now try and resume what you were talking about such such as Terminator Genesis would. It was interesting to me to see this movie so soon after I'd seen Jurassic World, which to me, as you heard on our review segment, worked in at least being fun. Like, yeah, it knows it's stupid, um, but like, there's part of me that thinks that Colin Trevorrow like, knew that a Jurassic Park sequel was inevitable, so he thought he might as well be the one to take a shot at it. And you sort of feel that, whereas like, this movie feels like it hates itself. It's like, I have to do this. Let's make all the drama about how we have to do this. And then because of that, I don't really feel any sort of, I don't know, emotional weight to it. Like Terminator 1 works. It's an awesome sci-fi film that's built around a paradox. And it's brief and short and it's a chase and you know you have it all there. Terminator 2 works because you have uh, you know a young John Connor you know, sort of making a Terminator nice and like the reversal. But like every other Terminator sequel after that hasn't been able to find what it needs to be about to be an entertaining movie. I mean, you could drape, a, like I said earlier, you could drape a Terminator chase on a lot of things. And as long as the movie is like having fun and or saying something, I'll be along with it. But this one, it's like it's gets deadly serious about how... Sarah Connor can't love anyone because anyone she loves dies because it's like faded. And then like five minutes yeah, that's later, totally glossed over that is thrown away so quickly. Five minutes later, there's a mugshot montage with the cops theme over it where they make so, a joke about how short so Sarah weird. Connor is, which has never been a thing. Oh, no. this movie hates the movies that it's like it goes through the entire film. I don't trying to build it off something. Hates- it's erasing itself like i feel the opposite of you i I enjoy terminator genesis more than jurassic world definitely Mm. um simply because i like the characters more i think amelia clark rocks i really liked her as sarah connor in this movie she's really fun jai courtney total dead weight hated him in the movie i mean the guy cannot land a joke not to say that the jokes that he's thrown are very good but by god i mean he is awful he cannot do a one-liner i mean i couldn't even tell if the things he was saying were supposed to be jokes at times i think they were it's unfortunate for him he just does not have he's not rugged he's not broken he he's not really bringing anything to the table kyle reese in this movie is is a blank slate he's just an observer of other action which is unfortunate um they should be twisting each other and impacting each other a give and take between sarah and kyle especially when john enters the picture now i don't think this is a spoiler because it's been all over the uh trailers and stuff but i mean obviously john is is an adversary here and that seems to have no emotional impact to people which i find very strange well, and then it's like spent an entire four movies telling us about this one paradox. And then John Connor says, I think the four of us are outside of time. And then movies like we're done talking about all of that now. It's going to be a chase from here on out. And I was just like, dude, you like 
you got so close to being about something, to making me care. And like the way that Terminator Salvation was supposed to end in the scripting phase was that, you know, Christian Bale dies and they strip off his skin and put it on Marcus. And so they right. kind of replace the John Connor thing, which is like, once again, like Jurassic World is about genetic modification, much like the unused Jurassic Park 4 scripts were all about genetic modification. Like this is the way the franchise is going. It just doesn't have any weight once it gets there because I guess it's too worried about pivoting into the future. It's just, uh I mean, there is a lot of setup for sequels that may or may not happen. It seems like they definitely will. They've put too much money into it. Um, and there's so much setup in this movie for... I mean, there's a huge unanswered question, as you mentioned, like who sent the original Guardian, if you will, uh, the T-800 back in time that we'll, we never find out. And I find that super annoying because it's it's essential to the story that they're telling about Sarah and Pops. Um, you know, to, you, they leave it out as as story as mythology set up for next movie but it's it's essential to character and so it's disappointing that they won't do that service and then later in this movie with matt smith this terminator who kind of transforms john connor uh i mean very clearly in the beginning of the movie i don't think i'm spoiling that but clearly he comes back uh as all things do in the terminator verse um and and it really has no payoff it's a very peculiar choice um, to make him a big bad when he there were, there's really mm. no time to establish him. There was parts at the end of the movie that were cut out between the test screening that I got reports from and uh, the movie <laughs> I saw because Matt Smith's character is not left hanging in the report that I got, which was otherwise 100% accurate. What do you mean left hanging? Uh, he doesn't. He doesn't blow up with Cyberdyne. Oh right, there's some. He he finds a way, much like. He finds a way to get out of the explosion. That's not in this movie. <laughs> the alternate timeline version of this movie, perhaps. Um, God, God, but like the damage that it does by not answering its weird time travel questions is just so bad for like the rest of the movies. Now it's like they could have two more movies, but all they're going to have to do is put together the mess that they like did here. And if I, I hate goddamn Jesus time travel where it's like this man is the special one that is able to keep his consciousness across different timelines that is able to be his own father's best soldier it's just it's not it's not my own grandpa exactly i'm my own grandpa i want i want to like this movie a lot i did not like it you didn't like it as much as the stupids where they actually sing that song um, but what about the action? So this is, I mean, in the end, I'm kind of positive on Terminator Genesis. Like, again, I found Jai Courtney to be very grating and, uh, you know, there's so many directions. There's so many plot points that fall away or don't seem to make any sense in direct competition with each other. In the end, I kind of dug it. I mean, the action is serviceable as you as you put but much more entertaining than Jurassic World I thought and and I think it's because I like this iconography a lot more and I'll say that I mean I'm, I'm not being objective quote unquote here I like Terminator robots I like watching Arnold smash things I like you know crazy blade hands guy running through car doors are running through the sides of buildings and smashing more smashing things and um sarah kind of gunning people down i mean it's a lot of fun in that respect uh it's more of the same i totally admit that but i dug the action um nothing inventive here but serviceable that is the key word 
Yeah, I would say that uh, one, a movie with physics at the core of its plot twist should really be more concerned with how physics works. But two, everything after the helicopter scene didn't hit for me at a thrilling level. Like when it is using the Terminator iconography, when it's like referencing the T-1000 or when, you know, something's walking out of fire and it's exoskeletons or exoskins been burned off. Like I feel all those moments, but like towards the end, it just becomes uh, them shooting guns at cameras and stuff that doesn't feel like it has a lot of weight as they sort of amp up the John Connor battle. Yeah, character. the finale is rather boring. I mean, the big fight between John Connor and and the T eight hundred is all. It's just CG carnage. There's really no brutality there, and Arnold is still capable of doing that. I mean, if you watch the end of the Last Stand. Here's an old guy, at least through the magic of, of wide shots and close-ups and movie editing, uh, can appear to be fighting a real person, duking it out. And I wish this movie had a little more of that. But as the big spectacle stuff, more mimicking Terminator 2, uh, this works. I mean, it's again, it's not as I, – I watched Terminator 3 the other night and, by man, the chase scenes with the trucks and the smashing – I, that's another word I'll go back to over and over again during this review. I just love seeing car stunts or just like in T3, it's cranes just destroying the sides of buildings as they're as they're chasing each other through L.A. streets. It's a real it's a real ball. But uh, Terminator Genesis is more CG. It's it's more in the vein of everything that we see on a on a weekly basis, um, but using this iconography that I really dig. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's like there isn't a moment towards the end of the film that would motivate me to walk out pleased like Jurassic World's big final showdown. This final showdown, because it doesn't it have a money you, shot, I'll give it that. At least right. Jurassic World has the money shot. Well, and then once it's, you know, over, the movie kind of keeps a slower, you know, more pensive pace, I guess, if you could apply that to that part of the movie until the end. And so you're just sort of left with like, huh. Like, I thought, I would expect, I mean, obviously the conflict's been resolved, but I expected more from you. Kind of like at the end of The Phantom Menace, where it's like he raises that ball over his head, and you're like, what, that's it? Well, it's super weird that the Arnold-on-Arnold fight happens really early in the movie. I mean, it makes sense logistically and storytelling-wise, but that's kind of the money shot. It really blows its load early, to use a disgusting turn of phrase. Um, Jason Clark, not that interesting. John Connor, uh, Nanobot, you know... He can just beat anything. You can't kill him. And at least with the other Terminator movies, it's like get him to a molten pit and and melt him down. Or actually what they do to the um, new T-1000, that's pretty cool. You know, they do yeah. this. Well, uh, I mean, there's a John Connor kryptonite. And that's really neat. There's and, a John Connor Terminator kryptonite. And ICP fans oh. want to know how they work. Yeah, that is hilarious. That uh, the, the key to beating the uh, Terminator this time around are, are CAT scan machines. Get all Magnets. the CAT scan machines. There is a hilarious segment in the movie The Ten uh, and with Lee of Schreiber. And oh, I saw The Ten. Yeah, he's trying to get all the, the CAT scan machines. And I thought of him during this movie. He is the key to Terminator. There's, there should be a Ten... And Terminator crossover. Just throwing it out there. Um, so this movie is clearly setting up for more. Do you want more? Uh, see, here's the thing. This is the negative side of the inevitability I'm already preaching. I think it's just going to happen. 
I think you're just like, eh. And then you let it go and you hope Alan Taylor goes back to directing Game of Thrones. That's not going to happen. <laughs> He's making movies now. Oh, I don't know. I think news broke today that they have conscripted it for at least one episode next season. Wow. But we'll uh, we'll, we'll pick that up. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if it's going to be Alan Taylor again. It's going to be somebody else. And it's the, the good side about if this movie doesn't do really well is that they will be able to sort of jettison a lot of it and sort of uh, pivot as hard Pretty as they pivoted here. down too, which could... Help. Or just make it about make it about something different. Uh, if it's going to be, I'm going to care. I'm supposed to care about these characters, no matter what the setting, because it are it is these characters. Then like, don't put them in a race away from a killer machine. Like, acknowledge the fact you have a huge world that says a lot of weird stuff about time travel and alternate dimensions, and sort of bring it all back together. Uh, I still think that's possible in the Terminator franchise. It's just amazing to me that we've seen two sequels that just don't fundamentally understand what to do with a Terminator movie. Right, which is really just scrap it because the more you expand Cameron's original movie, the more you expand the inherent plot holes of that first movie. I mean, that first movie is problematic in terms of logic. There should be just Terminators popping up all the time. You know, people, if if the mission didn't go right, then there should be other Terminators popping up in time travel to undo what had just happened. It's endless, right? Like, you can't... Well, I mean, that's what this season, this is this movie breaks, is because if it's an end time travel jump, or as soon as the time barriers breach, that world ceases to exist, then all the Terminator movies make sense. But I guess what I'm saying is we should never have gotten here. No. <laughs> even though this is what I like about it, even though I like watching writers flail around and try and figure out how to make this movie i guess there's yeah i'm i'm meta enjoying terminator genesis on some level just because it's so convoluted i can't believe someone sat down and tried to make sense of it because it was ultimately not going to make sense because the source material doesn't make sense well i mean up until when the sarah connor chronicles ended they had already explored what it would take to jump to a different timeline and like that seemed to work fine that series worked fine within the terminator mold and like i maybe it because i saw it work as a tv like hour to hour thing it's like yeah you could do a protracted chase and i would still sort of care about these you know sort of characters that are struggling with their fate but something about this movie man it's just like halfway through it stops being fun and i wish i could put my finger on exactly what that is and i think it's just because it tries something new and it just uh, the new stuff doesn't work I don't every think time they're arnold to be quite honest. No, and then, like every time they're calling back to a previous Terminator movie, it's at least okay, um, but it's tricking That's me. when it's okay? That's what I'm like, get on with it. What? Well, I mean, like the idea that like instead of one helicopter attacking a building, there's a helicopter chase with two helicopters. Like that sort of like exponential winking is something that I could sort of get behind. But then, Ugh, yeah. That's what, it, I, that's what I can't stand. Like the beginning of this movie kind of graded on me more than the second half because... It's replicating scenes from the 84 film. You know, even, even the punk rockers where uh, young Arnold is, is demanding clothing, they're there too. It's not Bill Pax anymore, unfortunately. Recast, but yeah. all that mimicking stuff gets on my nerves. I know that there's a point to it. I know this is like Back to the Future 3 syndrome. Uh, is, that, is that right? I'm, I'm thinking... Two, when, Back when, to the Future 2 syndrome. He sees himself in Back to the Future 2? Yes. Well, I'm, I'm I'm actually thinking of the scene where he runs down the main street and goes, Doc! 
Yeah, I'm that's back. in two and three. Technically, yeah, that's the stinger in two and uh, picks it up in three. Anyway, <laughs> Terminator Genesis. Where where are you? Are, do you like this film? I don't know if we no. just settled on like how you really feel. What's your N- gut say? I don't like this movie. No, I, I like it more than I liked Terminator Salvation because I feel like that movie you know, had no fun, no fun whatsoever. And uh, after Terminator Two opened up fun in this universe, you know that's I guess a, a place that he could go to. And if Arnold could take it there like he does in this movie, then like great, I'm on board. But it's like. Like you said earlier, blowing up the world of the first film just puts more emphasis on the paradox of the first film. So you'd think that they'd address that at some point rather than just, I mean, the reason I did the beginning of the movie didn't grate on me is because it's saying something thematically, which is the same thing that the previous movies have been saying, which is that you could change fate. And like this thing that we always assumed happened doesn't have to happen. But then it's... It neglects to build on that concept in favor of let's blow up Cyberdyne again, which is its problem. It doesn't take that next step. It just asks, ask, it's just asking questions. I'm a little yay on Terminator Genesis. I'm, I had a better time with it. I really kept thinking of Jurassic World the whole time and what that movie was getting so wrong for me and what this movie at least teeters into the positive side. Um, and it really comes down to Amelia Clark. I mean, I'm obsessed with her. I think she's really funny. Uh, I think she's really strong. She can pull off the act- action stuff, you know, pick up an automatic pistol or whatever and just blow people away. She's really good at it. She could drive a bus and look convincing. I mean, I'm, I'm sold on her for other maybe other franchises or other action movies, whatever. And I was really impressed with Arnold in this movie kind of standing to the side, uh, never trying to steal the spotlight, never making this franchise about him despite it being him. And I can't really picture it without him. Uh, he's he's quite funny in this movie and quite touching with Sarah at times. Uh, and then Jai Courtney shows up and fart, fart, fart. Uh, he's awful. I think so. Amelia Clark is does the absolute best that she could do with a role that she should not have been cast in. That is... Oh, there's no reason that going back in time and having Sarah be raised by a Terminator feminizes her more, in my mind. Uh, and yeah, her performance doesn't portray any of the Linda, ha- Linda Hamilton strength from T2 that was important. She's a new woman. She can't be that, Sarah Connor. She's been raised in a different way. Oh, wouldn't it be great if the movie told me that? <laughs> True. Uh, Terminator Genesis... Out now in theaters. Uh, see it? I don't know. Nah. Dun, 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 dun. It's the 4th of July. You're going to see something. See Inside Out again. Let's try to not cry this time. Dun, 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 dun. That's the end of this week's fighting in the war room. Before we wrap up, we uh, we have to do our lightning round question. Katie and David, you guys just shut up and stand over there. It's going to be me and Dave doing this thing in the end. Uh, Dave, do you know our lightning round question? It was in honor of Amy, the Amy Winehouse documentary. What is the most eye-opening musician documentary of all time or of all week? Whatever, Whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. I am going to pick one that I have more of a... I saw it in a screening with one of the stars present 
at the Angelica, I want to say, and really enjoyed it. And it came up again this week on, uh, or last week on John Oliver, which is I Trust You to Kill Me, which is a documentary about the band Rocco DeLuca and the Burden uh, going on tour. And suddenly Kiefer Sutherland takes an interest in the band and decides he's going to manage this band on their tour. And so it's an interesting look, not only at like touring life of the UK uh, with a working band, but like how crazy it must be to have Jack Bauer come up and say like, I want to manage your tour. (laughs) Uh, Well, that is awesome. And I'm going to pick one answer from our, the people who got back to us on the tweets. I'm actually going to pick two people who said the same thing uh, at, uh, Michel Ceratops or Aaron Michael Ceratops. Oh, Michael Ceratops. I am so dumb. (laughs) It is late. Uh, Aaron, who who listens and chimes in all the time. Thank you. And uh, PCC or PCK study. I can't read shit right now. Uh, You both said the decline of Western civilization. Penelope Spheris's Los Angeles punk rock documentary. It's actually several films, I believe. Um, or no, there's multiple installments, I should say. There's Decline of Western Civilization Part Two, The Metal Years, um, and Civilization Part Three does like gutter punk and homeless teens in the nineties and stuff. Um, but the original is uh was filmed at the end of the seventies and is all about Los Angeles punk, and it is on DVD and Blu-ray re-released by Shout Factory now. And I yes. highly recommend seeing it, which means it might actually be on Shout Factory's new streaming service, which is free to use, kind of like Hulu. So I, I would highly recommend figuring out if it is, because I'm not going to do all the work for you. Um, and that's it. Katie, why don't you take us out? Okay. That does it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. I won't be back next week. I'm going to win my brother's wedding, but these guys will. They don't have Entourage to review this time, though, so I don't know what man. I think we'll just be dancing. <laughs> yeah, this will be Tony. <laughs> and I will uh I'll be secretly in the audience. Video episode of oh, Fighting boy. in the War Room. Right, you guys. I'm Dreams do so come funny. true. Uh in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches. I'm the senior writer at uh Esquire.com and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. I'm Dave Gonzalez. I write about geeky things at geek.com daily, twice weekly at latino-review.com about Marvel movies and Star Wars movies, and occasionally at forbes.com about mega franchising. Oh, you can follow me on Twitter at DA7E and talk to me about Terminator Time Travel. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the associate film editor of Time Out New York and the editor-at-large of Little White Lies magazine. I'm on Twitter at David Ehrlich. And I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. Thank you for listening. And some of us will be back talking to you next week. 